So Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem. He's on the way from Galilee, making his way down the Jordan River Valley, cutting up through the Judean wilderness, making his way to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Jesus is on a, a, a timeline. He has a plan. There is an intention. Jesus knows what's coming. He knows that his enemies have devised a plot. He knows his enemies are looking for an opportunity. Jesus is not afraid. He's not deterred. In fact, we will, we will read in other places that no one took his life. He laid it down. That nothing was happening outside of Jesus' control. Now, as he's making his way, again, with all that in mind, of, of his intention, of his plans, of what he's going to do, we get this interesting story. We're told, verse 16, Matthew 19, that behold, now behold, Matthew writes, one came and said to him, good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, Keep the commandments. So the man said to Jesus, which ones? So Jesus replied, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the young man said to Jesus, all of these things I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? So Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have Give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, Matthew tells us, and this is quite shocking, but the man went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. If you take Matthew's account of this exchange, you couple it with Mark's and Luke's, the synoptic gospels, all three of them present for us different characteristics of this man. We call him, as a result, the rich, young ruler. The man's identity is a bit of a mystery. We are told, again, that he was very wealthy, that he was rich. And because of his wealth, the man had power. He was a ruler. We don't know if he was maybe a ruler of the synagogue, a synagogue. Maybe he had more authority. Maybe he was one of the, the great ruling body, that being the Sanhedrin. We're not sure. The man's rich. He doesn't lack. He's got power, prestige, authority, responsibilities. And he's young. He's got youth. This trifector, the rich, young ruler. And he hears, obviously, from just the context, he hears that Jesus is coming. And the man comes out to Jesus. And we should give him credit for that. The man had a question, he had something pressing on his heart, he had something uh, ping-ponging around in his mind, and he's like, I'm going to come to Jesus, I have a question. He's rich, he's young, he's powerful, he's authority, but he's like, I have a question and I'm going to come to Jesus. Again, we go back to the text. He comes to Jesus and he calls Jesus good teacher. Now Jesus addresses this. Good teacher. Well, what does that mean, young man? Like, what does it mean? You're going to call me good. And in, in the, the original language, it's the idea of perfection. 
He doesn't just affirm that Jesus is a rabbi, a teacher, but he attributes to him this characteristic. Hey, you're a good man. You're a good teacher. You're worthy of me coming to you with a particular question. He asks, he says, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Now, again, there's a lot of things that we could unpack about the rich young ruler and a negative. But we should give him, again, another do. The man's longing, the man's consideration. The man has wealth. The man has prestige. The man has authority and power. The man has what we would think to be a pretty darn good life. He has everything that he needs. And yet there's something he understands. There's something missing. There's something lacking. There's something he doesn't have. There's something that's a mystery still to him. He says, what must I do? I want eternal life. What a great desire. Again, the man has everything he needs in this life, but there's a longing for the next. I want everlasting life. I know that there comes a day that I will die. The man is affirming. I will die, and then life really begins. And all of this stuff I have, all of this, these accolades, all of these, everything goes away. Like, it, like I want everlasting life. What must I do? He desires the right thing. He comes to the right person. Affirming the right characteristic of Jesus. His question's a little skewed, though. And it gives us some insight into the man's perspective. It gave Jesus insight. His question was simple. I want eternal life. What do I have to do to get it? What do I have to do? Tell me what to do, and I will do it. Now, that's his question. Now, within that, we understand that there's a misconception of this man in regards to the achievement of everlasting life. Everlasting life is not something that, that we get, that we're given through merit, through energy, through effort. Everlasting not life is not a reward for you being a do-gooder. In fact, the Bible tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible even goes another step to say that none are good, no, not one. There's nothing we can do because we've already done the one thing that gets us sent to hell. We're in sin. So the man's like, I have a problem. I, I, I want everlasting life. You get Je Jesus, tell me what to do. Tell me what to do. Now let's look at what Jesus, how Jesus addresses this. Again, he, he says, why do you call me good? Jesus then says, no one's good but one, that is God. And in, and in some ways, Jesus is, is emphasizing two things. I'm not just a good teacher. I'm God. You're affirming I'm good. You really understand the implications of that statement. There's only one good, and that's God. Only one perfect, that's, that's God. You're attributing that to me. I'm perfect. And I think there's a subtlety of what Jesus is saying. And, and I think it's important for our day, especially within a religious culture in which we, li li we live. There are a lot of people that, that say, again, you take a poll, you'll find it. Are you going to go to heaven? You'll say, yeah, I'm going to heaven. Why are you going to heaven? The answer will be probably nine times out of ten. I won't say all the time. But most oft, more often than not, the answer is, well, I'm going to go to heaven because I'm a good person. I mean, do you not know me? I'm obviously heaven quality. Now, how do we reach that conclusion, though? And I think there's something that Jesus is saying here by emphasizing, let's talk about goodness. 
You're saying I'm a good, you're, you're attributing this to me. Let's talk about that. There's only one good, that's God. You're reaching a conclusion about your moral acclimate, your moral attribute. You're reaching the conclusion you're a good person. How? And we're guilty of the same thing. Again, if I ask you, are you going to go to heaven? Yes. Why? You're a good person. What you're actually saying, whether you realize it or not, is you're reaching the conclusion that you're a good person. How? Well, I'll tell you how. Again, it might not be a conscious thing you're doing, but it's still true. What you do often is you, you, you find, well, there's that person. <laughs> They're not good. As a matter of fact, I mean, compared to them, I mean, I'm, I'm great. They got all kinds of problems. They're messed up. Look at them. You see, I, I'm a good person more often than not because I'm not the person I define as being bad. I ain't Osama bin Laden. God will accept me because I'm not them. Clearly he won't accept them, but since I'm not like them, I'm good. Now the problem with that is that you're trying to get a, a measurement using a skewed ruler. Yes, that, per yeah, that person's a knucklehead, you're right. But that doesn't then make you good you might be better than them, but you're still falling short of the standard of what's good. Jesus emphasizes, what's good? Well, there's only one that's good, and that's God. So rich young ruler, you think you're good because you're comparing yourself to everyone else around you. And in that context, you're probably great. You probably can check the boxes. You get the sticker on the report card. You're not as bad as everyone else. The problem, though, is that doesn't make you good because your standard of goodness isn't them, but it should be God. In fact, Jesus then says, let's take it one step. I'm the standard. So Jesus points this out. No one is good but one. That's God. And then I love Jesus is leading him. He's leading him. He says, he says, if you, okay, okay, moralist, if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Keep the commandments. And, and I love what the, he's like, okay. Now we're speaking my language. I ask, what must I do? You say, keep the commandments. Well, which ones? Which ones? And Jesus plays along. He's like, okay, I'll give you some. You shall not murder, shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. Check. I mean, I've never, I ain't killed anybody. I got that one down. You shall not commit adultery. I'm good there. You shouldn't steal. I, I, you know, I'm not into the five-finger discount. You shall not bear false witness or lie. You should honor your father and mother. Jesus does something interesting. He then skips over to Leviticus. He adds, then you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to Jesus, okay. All of these things I've kept from my youth. What do I still lack? Now, there's some audacity to that. I want eternal life. What must I do? Obey the commandments. Which ones? Well, here, these. <laughs> done. I've done that since, since I was a youth. Now, Jesus does something interesting because, because he leaves some commandments out, doesn't he? You see, if you take the Ten Commandments, there are a lot more than that. Lots of commandments. But the top ten, the summary, the ten could be divided into basically two different categories. 
The first grouping deal with the vertical. The first set of commandments deal with man's relationship with God. And then the second grouping deals with man's horizontal relationship. First, my relationship with God, and then the second grouping, the grouping that Jesus references, are the ones with each other. Murder, adultery, lying, etc., bearing false witness, whatnot. Jesus skips the ones about God. He focuses on the ones dealing with the, the human relationship. But then Jesus leaves one out. That's what's interesting. He goes through this second section, but he, he leaves out the Tenth Commandment. Now, I know that you guys, being the expert Bible students that you are, you know that already. As we were reading through this list, you're like, well, wait a second, what about the tenth? And I'm sure I don't even have to mention what the tenth commandment is, because you guys already know. But just in case you don't. Thou shalt not covet. Now, that's an interesting commandment. Really, in some regards, it's a third category unto itself. First, dealing with my relationship with God. Second grouping, dealing with my relationship with others. But this covetousness one, Paul will write about it, actually. This is the one that he had a problem with. Because covetousness, it's not something that manifests all the time in an outward action. Instead, where, where does coveting happen? It's inside of me. Now, Jesus intentionally, hey, which commandments? Okay, how about these? Done. He leaves one out. Now he'll circle back subtly to this one command. Because again, Jesus is leading the man. He says, what do I still lack? Now I, I should add kind of an amendment here. The man obviously lacked a lot. From his vantage point, he was blameless in this. Now that's not just unique to this rich young ruler. Paul says the same type of thing in Philippians. Paul's talking about himself, and he says, I was blameless concerning the law. Paul said that, and it gets affirmed by the Holy Spirit. Paul's like, if you could achieve righteousness through your obedience in the law, I was there. I did it. Now, did he? No, it was the way that they judged it. It was the way that they viewed it. They, they brought things to a lower standard. Jesus addresses this in the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't he? He's talking about some of these. Murder. Well, I'm good on that one. But Jesus is like, yeah, are you? Because I would say that it's not just about the action, it's about the attitude that, that manifests the action. Jesus then says, if you've been angry with your brother, you've, you've violated the heart of this law. You haven't killed someone, but you've wanted to, so you're guilty. Now, if you take that idea, could anyone say that, well, they haven't violated the commandment? No. Adultery, okay, I haven't cheated on my wife. But Jesus is like, okay, have you ever lusted? Well, darn. Check off another one. You see, the man's like, what do I lack? He's got a misunderstanding of the heart behind the law. So Jesus continues, he says, he says, if you want to be perfect, you really want to do it. If you really want everlasting life and you want to be perfect and therefore you've earned it, I got something for you. Now, what, what Jesus then says here isn't a, 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 what we would call like a universal commandment. Jesus is having a conversation with a person. 
And he's already identified what the guy's real issue is by leaving out the 10th commandment about coveting. He knows this guy's got it all together, but he does have a problem. The one problem that the guy has is materialism. The one thing, and again, Jesus, if if you skip over what he says and then look at the essence, the invitation here. Okay, go sell everything, give it to the poor, great. That's for the guy. The invitation, though, is what? Come follow me, which is what Jesus offers to everyone. That's the essence of salvation. If you want eternal life, I'll lead you there. Come follow me. But I know, and this is what Jesus is saying, for you to come and follow me, you have a problem. And that problem is all of this stuff. So in order for you to come and follow me, I know in order for you to do that, you got to let go of the stuff. Which is why Jesus tells him, go sell it all, get rid of it, and come follow me. And the man, well, it's, it's one of the saddest verses. When he hears that, when he hears that, he's sorrowful. Don't miss his sorrow. The man is grieved. Why? Because Jesus has just nailed him to the wall. He knows it. He knows it. That Jesus skipped through it all and got right to the issue, the heart of the issue, his heart issue. Covetousness. And he walks and he leaves sorrow, sorrowful, for he had a great many possessions. Understand, everlasting life is something given, bestowed, and received. You can't earn your way into heaven. If you could, for those of you that might be trying, I ask, if you could earn your way into heaven, I mean, if you, could, if you could discipline yourself, get all of your X's and your O's together, cross the T's, dot the I's, you get your life in, in order. And you're good. Like the rich young girl, I've been blameless. Look at my life. It's better than everybody else's. I'm going to get to heaven. If you could do that, if you could possibly achieve that, I ask you one question. If that was possible, why would Jesus have needed to die? Like, Kind of an extreme remedy given by God for something that isn't that big of a problem. If you could earn your way, if you could do the things to deserve it, if you could actually get to a juncture that when you die and you stand before God, you're like, here's the resume, and it works. That Jesus wouldn't have needed to die, but Jesus did die. Why? You can never come up with a good enough resume. None are good, no, not one, all fall short of the glory of God, as good as you think you are. You really aren't. You know, we think about good deeds. You're like, well, Zach, I do a bunch of good stuff. Okay, that's great. Let's talk about your good stuff for a moment. Why do you do it? Well, (laughs) I want to, it makes me feel good. Oh, so you do good things for others for yourself. Isn't that selfish? Isn't that egotistical? Well, I do these things. I I like the attention. Well, that's, again, if you really start to get now beyond the actions and to the motivation by actions, can anyone ever really come to God and say, I'm good? Are you really? Especially then when the standard of goodness is Jesus. You might be good looking around this room. 
but look to Jesus. And if you look to Jesus, are you, hey man, I'm, I'm a great husband. Are you as good as Jesus when it comes to his church? Well, okay, okay. Like that's kind of an unreachable standard, Zach, duh. It's kind of the idea. And so you got to come to the point where you're like, okay, I, I can't do it. I can't be good enough. But then it's in that moment, there's always something to let go of. A book been written, it's, it's insightful. And we use the word idol. You shall not have graven images, you know, no idols. Idols. And in our Western kind of context, when, we, when you hear the word idol, like, well, I ain't got no idols. I ain't got no like, little Buddha statues sitting in my, my closet that I'm lighting incense to. Idols. We think in our mind we get this idea of like some physical statue that we're praying to. We're like, that's nonsense. That's ridiculous. Why would I do that? Well, take it a step further. Because an idol, an idol is anything that takes a superior place in your life over Jesus. Which actually then means that idols can be really good things. They're just in the wrong place. Counterfeit gods is another way of defining an idol. You know, we all, we all do something, again, without really thinking about it. But we all have idols. Idols are very easy for us to, to, to develop. And this is how it often works. Whether you believe in heaven or hell, either way, what's funny is you will in your own life define hell a certain way. Now, God defines hell, which should place things in a particular category. But for you, hell can just be defined as that one thing you want to avoid the most that makes you the most miserable. Your hell. And hell can be all kinds of things. For some people, like being poor is hell. Being poor is hell. I don't want to be poor. So you define hell, and then what do you do? Well, I don't want to be poor, so functionally... You will create a savior, something to save you from hell. So if hell's being poor, that savior could be a job, a career, and you will worship that thing. And you'll put all your heart and energy and effort. Why? Because it's a savior saving you from hell. That's how it works. The problem is, is that it's become an idol because you've misdefined hell. For some people, maybe, maybe try it this way. For some people, hell is physical insecurities. It's physical insecurities. Being fat, being out of shape, being overweight. You look in the mirror and you hate, you hate yourself. It's, it's, it's miserable. It's hell for you. And, and what do you do? Because that's hell, you wanna be saved from hell. And so you will create a savior for hell. Sometimes a savior becomes a gem or a diet, or a workout routine, and you will worship that Savior. You will tithe to that Savior. You will dedicate, you'll, you'll volunteer for that Savior. You will put all kinds of, now I'm not bagging on a gym. I just joined one this week. It's good to take care of yourself. But if the motivation is hell and insecurity, and, and, and now this becomes my Savior for it, it it's an idol. Why, again, is it ever going to fix the problem, this deeper insecurity? 
No, it doesn't. Ever. It just feeds, it's an inadequate savior. Jesus is what needs to fix your insecurity. Some people, you know, their hell is, is loneliness. Being lonely. They just don't want to be alone. I get it. And so what do they do? They, 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 they set up saviors to help them escape their loneliness. They become a diehard Georgia Bulldog fan. And on Saturdays, it's the other Sabbath. They go to the bar with only other Bulldog fans because it's their community and it's their friends. And they, instead of wearing Calvary 316 gear, they're wearing 24-7 their dog gear. <laughs> Sorry, Amy. You just are sitting there with a Georgia shirt. But again, it can be a group of friends. And, and you set up a savior. That's an idol. It's not a little Buddha statue. It's these very subtle things that we erect to save us from something that we see as hell. The problem is, is that there's bigger hell. This man, what was his God? He would never voice it, but when push came to shove, what was it? It was his possessions. It was the security he found. It was the stability he found. His stuff, his possessions, his wealth. So much so that when it came to following Jesus, which was for everlasting life, he's like, I can't do it. Jesus, what does he really do? He goes to the 10th commandment, covetousness. He points out what his real savior is so that he knows what? Those first commandments that we didn't even address, you fail in all of them. Because you have idols. You have counterfeit gods. You have things that take a superior place to me. And I'm inviting you to follow me. I've never met somebody that gave it all up to follow Jesus. In, in a proverbial sense that regretted, the, that regretted it. Never met, I've never met that person. If you're that person, let's talk afterwards. I've never met somebody that was like, you know what? I want everlasting life. And, and, and what's cool is the Bible didn't even place everlasting life in the context of some future thing. It's an immediate. It's an immediate thing. It's, it's a life that I'm given right now that lasts forever. That death can't take, me, take from me. So this rich young ruler, he's like, I can't. I, I, I have a theory. I, I have no evidence for this. I don't think that this is the end of this guy's story. I really don't. And again, I'm just going to throw something out you can, you can chew on on your own. One of the things I've always felt was kind of odd about Saul's conversion. Paul. On the road to Damascus, right? Bright light, he gets knocked off the donkey. And what's, what's the words? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? And then he says, it's hard to kick against the goats. It's hard to resist what you know is true. Like Jesus, Jesus talks to Saul. Seemingly with already a relationship, doesn't he? To the point that Saul recognizes the voice. Saul knows. Saul knows who it is. Saul knows it's Jesus. What is he resisting? You know, I, again, rich, young ruler. I don't lack anything. I'm perfect. Paul says the same thing in Philippians. The only other person in Scripture that could make the same type of claim is Paul. 
blameless. And Jesus is like, hey, you've been resisting something, Saul. It's hard to kick against the goats. It's hard to resist what you know is true. How did he know? I think it was right here. It's just my own theory. I think the rich young ruler is Saul of Tarsus. And he encounters Jesus, and Jesus invites him to follow him, but he's got to let go of his life. He can't do it. And it eats at him. Why, does, why, do, why do people get really, really violent towards Christians and the things of Christ? It's often because they're resisting, they're fighting what deep down they know is true, and it bothers them. I think it's Saul. Which then I find encouraging because this guy leaves. It's an interesting journey. But Jesus doesn't leave him, does he? He ends up knocking him off his high horse. And what does he do? He, he gives him a new invitation. Now, Jesus then, we're told in verse 23, said to his disciples. And, and the idea here is that as the man's leaving, as he's leaving, Jesus, he turns to his disciples and, and he says, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, now we need to place it within the context of what just happened. Jesus is making an observation, he's making a point. Riches, money, wealth is an amoral thing. It's a tool. Can it be a God? Yes. Can it have an unhealthy place in your life? No doubt. Do riches being rich, does that kick you out of heaven? No, not at all. In fact, I know some very wealthy people that are some of the kindest, most benevolent Christ followers I've ever met. In fact, I've met some poor people that are total terrible, terrible people. Like, I know, I know poor people that are going to hell. I know rich people going to hell. I know rich people going to heaven. I know poor people going to heaven. That doesn't matter. And it seems within the context that Jesus is referring to this guy and his deeper issue. Not just the riches. It was the security he was finding and how it tethered him to the world. I think it, it, Jesus is addressing the religious person. The person that has created this whole structure where it's me working, me achieving, me earning, me deserving. And Jesus is like that person. And, I, and you know, one of the things I just, it, it's such a disappointment when it comes to the scripture is that we don't give, we're not given tone, you know. Tone means so much. What was Jesus' tone here? The man walks away. I think that this, is, that this just oozes brokenness from Jesus. And, and he, makes this, he makes this analogy. He says it's easier for a camel to go through the, the eye of a needle. Now, you will listen to some pastors that will say, they will tell you, that within ancient Jerusalem, within the walls of ancient Jerusalem, there was a gate. And this gate, it would be open, it would be closed at night to protect the city. And within the gate, there was this door that would be used so that if you arrived at the city at night, they would open the smaller door within the greater gates so that you could enter without opening the greater gate and giving room for some invader or marauder. And that this little door was called the eye of the needle. 
And that, that camels, the only way they could get through the eye of the needle is that they'd have to take off their loads and get on their knees and walk through. Uh, that, that preaches, I'll be honest. Unless you're willing to let go of the world and get on your knees, you'll never enter. Problem is that it's not true at all. <laughs> there was no such gate. There was no such eye of the needle. Completely made up. Preach is great. What does Jesus mean? I think he means a literal eye of the needle. Like he's being silly. He's like, if you're trying to get into heaven by being good enough, you'll be just as effective as a literal camel trying to go through the eye of a little needle. I mean, I got kind of morbid thinking about it, but like you can't even grind up a camel and just a consistency that would enable you to squirt it through the needle. I mean, really, but you couldn't even get, I mean, all that goes into a camel. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, if this is your way of approaching God, it'll never work. That's what he's saying. It's impossible. There's such a better option. You see, the gospel. Talk about the gospel. What does the word gospel mean? Hey, we're a gospel church. <laughs> Define gospel. Well, literally, gospel is good news. And what is the good news? The good news is that where it's impossible for you to ever be good enough to earn God's favor, he's not asking you to, and instead he wants to give it. All you have to do is receive it. And you're like, well, I'm, I mean, Zach, I'm not, I'm not worthy. No crap you're not. Good thing your worth doesn't matter. It's not your sacrifices. It's Jesus' sacrifice. It's not your goodness. It was his goodness. It's grace. So the disciples, they hear all this, and they're greatly astonished, and they actually ask a really good question. Good job, guys. In the context of all of this, they're like, well, <laughs> who can be saved? And the answer is no one. In the context, who can be saved? If that guy, if that rich young ruler isn't good enough, then who can be? So Jesus looked at them. And he said to them, With men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. I, it's such a shame that verse 26 has been Tebowified. I just made that up. Tebowified is when you take a verse in Scripture and you apply it to all of the things it doesn't apply to. 
AKA, this verse has nothing to do with Tim Tebow being a good quarterback. He can put it on his eye black as much as he wants. He's got a goofy throwing motion. Was never going to work. You know, have you heard that, right? Well, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Or with God, all things are possible. I'll never be able to dunk with God or without him. I'm five foot eight with a two and a half inch vertical. I ain't dunking with God without him. What's the verse about? In context, salvation. If that guy can't be good enough and he's great, then I'm in trouble. Yeah. Who can be saved? No one. And then Jesus makes a radical statement. Again, with men, when it comes to salvation, with men, it's impossible. Nothing you can do. With men, you're damned. Impossible. That's Jesus. But then this great promise, he says, but with God, if you're with God, if you're with God, I'd circle, underline, highlight the with God. It's the most important part of it. If you're with God, well, all things are possible. With God. With Jesus. So Peter answered, and he said to him, he said, Jesus, see, listen, buddy, we've left all, and we've followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? <laughs> I like Peter. You know, the rich young ruler wasn't really willing to give it all away and follow after Jesus. So in the context, Peter's like, hey, 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 wait a second. You know, we gave it all up. Did they? No, actually. Where's Jesus' headquarters in Capernaum? Peter's house? <laughs> he hadn't given up his house. Jesus tells the rich man, take everything you have, sell it all, come follow me. If Jesus had said that to Peter, I don't think he would have done it. Jesus didn't. He just said, come follow me. Take up your cross, follow me. Jesus hung out in Peter's house. And not only that, but Peter, when Jesus, resurrection, crucifixion, all that, where do we end up finding Peter? Back in Galilee, doing what? Fishing on his boat. He didn't even give up his business. And yet here he goes, he's like, hey, rich young ruler, wouldn't do it. Hey, look at us, we did it. We've left all. No, they hadn't. He still had a wife. Therefore, what shall we have? Jesus says, assuredly, I say to you, that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And then he says, and everyone. So it looks like the first half pertains to the disciples, the 12. But everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and last first. And that actually sets the stage for then a story that reinforces this idea, which we don't have time to get to today. So it kind of that last verse really should be in the other chapter. Because Jesus is going to explain this. 
He's going to unpack this. But what Jesus is saying is like, okay, <laughs> learn I love he just gives Peter a little grace. You didn't really leave it all, but let's, let's just bygone be bygone. Nobody, what Jesus is saying, nobody that follows me. Nobody will follow me. Nobody at some point are like, man, I made a terrible mistake following this Jesus. Because Jesus takes care of his own. What this man didn't realize is that Jesus was offering him so much more than what he had. And that's often what the world does. That's the struggle. That's the trial. Do you believe that Jesus has more for you than what the world does? That's the essence, isn't it? Do you believe that Jesus has a better plan for your life than the one that you've cooked up for yourself? That's, that's, the, that, that's the question. That's what Jesus really is asking the rich young ruler. So now I have a plan for your life, but you got to let it go and follow me. And the man has to make a decision. Is following Jesus in the life that he will give me better than this one? Sadly, he said no. What do you say? It's the same question. So, Father, Lord, we just let that sit.